Um, so, what? It's been a while. Yeah, what, what's up? Uh, the semester is over, finally. <laughs> it's been uh, a... Yeah. <laughs> when did your Deeply semester... Exhaust. When did your semester end? Literally last week. Okay. Well, I mean, earlier this week, actually. But yeah, uh, final assignment was due earlier this week. So this was the technically the last week of my semester. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just finished TAing one batch. So mm-hmm. the, the, the final two, three weeks, super intense. So... Um, there's no way we're getting. Yeah, you can, I can imagine. I mean, it's no always way we're basically last week of any yeah. semester is always projects, projects, yes, projects, correct. projects, and that's correct. when everyone, sh- I mean, for lack of a better phrase, shits their pants. Yeah, yeah. Right? I because, mean, you know, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends, right? I mean, if you're a semester, if you're doing um, a semester at uni, there's always that dynamic of you know at the beginning of the semester, the professor says, "By the way, you're going to have a project." <laughs> <laughs> you're going to end the semester with a project and it's a good idea if you start thinking about it at the start of the semester and then nobody does. And then week 10 comes along and you're like, yeah, oh you're shit. Like, ah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, except you- in my case, mm-hmm. right, you know, I actually was thinking about this yep. since not even not even the beginning of the semester. These are projects I've been mulling over one of one of the projects for years. Right. So, you know, this was like the, the, the perfect excuse for me to get down and actually work on this project. Because you know, otherwise right. there's really you, you, you need that motivation to, to do something once in a while. That's true, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and you know, I mean this uh, this is something that I, at least I I know occurs often in academia, maybe maybe less so elsewhere, but it's that, you know, when you have all these um data sets that you have lying around that you know you don't really have the headspace to sit down and think about. It's true because, and you really need to force yourself to sort of you know put yourself into a position where okay, how do I approach this problem? In in a sense, it's a age old problem, right? In that everybody <laughs> always has multiple projects running at a time, but in reality, yes. you only have time and energy for headspace. maybe two or three. Yeah, headspace for maybe two mm-hmm. or three big projects at a time, and yep. when one of those big projects um or rather when you are forced to make one of those projects uh, a semester project or a priority because mm. you have a conference a deadline deadline <laughs> a deadline of some kind then suddenly mm-hmm. you make time and space for that thing yes and then the fog clears yeah and then suddenly you see the perspective the way you need to yeah i mean for right. a for for a boot camp, it's a it's a little bit different in the sense that mm-hmm. I mean it's the same thing, right? At the beginning, you tell the students, "Hey, um, there's going to be a project at the end. Start thinking about how you're going to do it now." But the reality of it is, no matter how well prepared you are, you you cannot prepare for the project weeks because, firstly, at the beginning, you have no sense of what's possible. Yeah, correct. Because you have you know nothing. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing is... And you're not expected of, to do anything, right? Yeah, you know, correct. The expectation is you, you really don't jack shit. Correct. And um, the, from from my point of view as a TA, there is a, um, an, additional, an additional challenge, right? Which is that the mm-hmm. first six weeks are well-defined. Yes. Right? Maybe even the first seven weeks. Because there is one... There are two projects at the end. One project is semi-prescribed, as in mm-hmm. we tell the students, you must build a marketplace. Right. Yeah. And yep. there are reasons for that because it kind of tests things that they are supposed to know by that point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so marketplaces are going to all take very similar shapes and forms and you expect certain problems to appear. Um, like for example, how do you differentiate a, a buyer from a seller? How do you differentiate? Yes. Um, or something like, how do you, you know, if you are booking um, time, right? How do you block out time or how do you validate that, you know, this object mm-hmm. has not been booked Yep. at yep. this time, right? Things like that. I mean, it's the basic error handling and sort of Correct. use case scenarios that are fairly straightforward I mean, in a situation like basic, this. Basic domain modeling, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But then when you get to the final, final projects, the last two weeks, these are projects that the students propose during yep. the course, during the, the, the pitch night, right? And yep. as a TA, you roll with whatever they propose. <laughs> so if they have this massive, um, well, no matter what, you as 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 a TA or an instructor, you have to bring the project into scope, right? So if they propose something yes. that takes six months, you're just like, just like, okay, you have two weeks. What's the two-week version of this? Mm. But sometimes they'll be like, we want to do video chat or we want to do... You know, like my batch had two AR projects. Oh, yeah, right? okay. Um, yeah. Things like that. Um, yep. You have to roll with it, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, you have to, I mean, you have to ground yourself in reality at some point, but yeah. Y- well, yes, definitely. But you also <laughs> have to, you also have to look into like, okay, what's actually possible? And sometimes yep. Yep. that yep. can be more than you expect. But yes. it is sufficiently. I mean, let me put it this way, right? One of the students, one of the one of the projects, um, wanted to implement like contract signing because the idea was, uh, okay. yeah, because the idea was, and this is for like onboarding people onto a project, and mm-hmm. part of that is, hey, um, sign this document to say that you are mm. you are confirming your participation, and so. Yeah. You have to. They had to. Um, they had to use the DocuSign API. Yes. And using the DocuSign, like how to make the DocuSign API work, that's not well documented. Is that right? Okay. Um. Yeah. Because um, not that many applications actually integrate fully with DocuSign. I think. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't look mm-hmm. at this. One of my. One of the um, lead instructors was was handling that, and uh, mm-hmm. it took him a full day. Oh, to get shit. it working, yeah. yeah. Oh wow! Okay, I wasn't. Like, Holy cow! Yeah, correct. And okay. so this is a case of you know you're coming to something you've never seen it before, mm-hmm. and now you have to debug it, <laughs> right? <What>? Or build it <laughs> from scratch under time pressure. So it's okay. To be fair, this yeah. sounds like most academic projects where you know mm. most of most of us in academia we're not experts in. No, I wouldn't even say everything yep. without expressing anything to, yep. <laughs> you know, to begin well, with. <laughs> expert like, is I mean, relative. You, no, but you know, you get especially you know when, when you're. I, 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 this this happens across all levels of seniority, especially even at mm-hmm. the highest of professorate levels. Yep. But you know, you get you get students coming in. They go, oh, well, you know, I'm interested in this, and I like to do this. And then you know, the professor sometimes not knowing better goes, oh, that's such a great idea. Let's let's do this. And I mean, yes, there is some experience that comes along with this, you know, and some right. professors are wise enough to go, okay, eh, this sounds a bit, you know, expensive right. or difficult or challenging, but very often you just blunder into these coding projects that, you know, end up 
snowballing because, well, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, this is this is part of the learning process, right? As cliche this is, this as is it is. The learning, yeah. yeah. No, it really, really is. Yeah. 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 Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like fun. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I mean, a, a, as someone who has has had to TA, you know, I'm thankful I don't. I'm not taking any any classes with, with with projects, but you know, I'm doing. I did two classes with final projects, so you can imagine just how shitty the last week, yeah. the last two weeks have been for me. And you know, it's it's one of those things where I I I, I'm, I surprised myself. I was able uh-huh. to write up two manuscript drafts, right? That are by and large publication ready in two uh-huh. weeks. I mean that's a that's an ideal kind of outcome, where you that's you, an you output pro- rate that I was not sustainable. <laughs> right, like I mean, but to to put it another way, if you think about the the bandwidth problem or the headspace problem, right? Mm. It's it's coming back to the fact that having that final project gives you a focus to say yes. that okay, I have a deadline and I have to define a scope that allows me to meet this deadline, and yep. sometimes that whatever you produce within that scope uh, outstrips. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect, but it upstri- outstrips mm. what you have would have done otherwise. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, the, the two manuscript drafts I produced, they're not 100% publication ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still need to, you know, revise some analyses, do some robustness tests. But it, 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 it is a huge major hurdle to, to get across. Right? You know, people say yeah. that the first draft is always the hardest draft to write. Yep. And, and it's true, right? Once you have a first draft, you can just, you know, go back and, okay, you know, identify where the flaws are, what needs to be addressed, and you already have a scaffold from which to work from. Yeah. So it's a lot easier. I mean, because the first draft is the hardest because at that point, what, you have no uh, framework. <laughs> Everything is air. Yeah, 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 correct. It's just amorphous. After you put down the first draft, then at that point, you are, you are editing, Yes, but that correct. first draft. Yeah. I mean, I actually like to think of it as the 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 analogy that I tend to use is the first draft is like mining. You're mm. just you're just <laughs> gathering things and digging through yep. things, and like the second draft onwards, that's your refining process. You yes. are looking for like the Leaf. gold nuggets <laughs> inside. <laughs> Right, but the and first draft is like, come up with shit. Yeah. yeah, or maybe maybe not even mining. I mean, it depends on on how you ex- exactly do it. Some people might be mining, and some people might be panning. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's true. so. Anyway, but you know, it's yeah. So I'm 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 just really happy that you know these two projects sort of you know and at least well at least one of them I've been working on the the, the dead bird stuff I've been working <laughs> on for bird stuff. The dead bird stuff I've been working on for seven years. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, it's 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 on its way to primary school now. <laughs> you oh know, my god! That's, that's... When you put it that way, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's 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 a seven-year-old data set, uh, and you know, it's it's something that that, and you know, when I wrote the proposal for this, so I mean, one of the good the good things that that uh, this at least the classes I've done uh, that they did was that they said, okay, week mm-hmm. four you have to turn in a proposal. Right. Right. Right, and because you know, I, this I guess is analogous to the the, the pitch week, but yeah. you know they say week four you must have a scaffold of an idea you have in mind, and then you have to flesh out not just what you want to do, but what your data sources are, what your analytical methods are going to be. Right. Uh, 
and then the professor will go through and the TA will go through and go, yeah, this this seems a bit ambitious. This you know this is yep. a bit under un, under ambitious, etc. etc. And then you know you 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 get to work based off of that. So you have at least a full nine weeks or nine right. or eight weeks to sort of, which is you know two months basically to yeah. to sit down and hash out your problem. Right. Okay. So do you want to talk about yeah. your primary school going project? My primary school going projects. I mean, I, this is uh, this is my pride and joy. You know, it's my it's my little baby. It really is. You know, there's, there's no other way 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 to describe it. Right? I've been working on this for such a bloody long time that you know I'm just glad that you know it turned out to be something interesting. It turned mm-hmm. out that, that the results are are actually talk aboutable in a okay. sense. Right? Okay. It's not it's not it's not a steam pile of garbage, which you know could very well have been. Yeah. Uh, but basically, you know, been collecting dead birds for the last seven years right mm-hmm. and and up until then it's just been a, up until recently it's just been a pile of data right it's been oh this bird died here this bird died there and then you know so what right right and and you know this has been a, this is something that also one of the interesting things about academia is that a lot of things come down to fashion uh, <laughs> yeah. and this has been a very fashionable topic of research in the last like couple of years um so, so right now, there's a lot of interest, especially from the Americas, uh, in mm-hmm. looking at um, uh, you know how cities contribute to to bird deaths. This there's been right. a slew of papers over the last decade, <clears throat> actually no, not even the last five years, mm-hmm. um, and mostly from North America. But in the last two years, all of a sudden, this flurry of papers from South America, so from Brazil, from Costa Rica, from Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. from Mexico. That should um, be interesting. It really is. So, I mean, it, it is, you know, it does attest to the, the, the fashion-drivenness of, 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 of scientific research, yeah. but it also means that a lot of the rest of the world is being left behind. Right. Right, you know, there's literally nothing coming out of Asia. Okay, yeah. So, my thought is, holy shit, there's a gap here that needs to be filled. Um, okay. You know, figuring out what what a, what is it about a city that, contributes to that causes birds to knock into buildings and die right right you know i mean there has to be something that you know there has to be some driving force in the city um and then so when you look through the literature you realize there are more than a a few gaps to be addressed and one Mm -hmm. of the problems is that uh what they've been doing in america at -hmm. least is um They've been doing very small surveys, but over many, many, many cities. So, for example, in Cleveland, they'll survey this nine-block patch or nine-building right. patch. Or right. in, you know, in, in, in California, they'll survey just, just this one building uh, okay. that's known to kill a lot of birds. And, okay. you know, and then they try to draw inferences from this. Now, now this works on a building-to-building scale because you're only yep. surveying sort of a finite number of build, uh, a finitely small number of buildings. Yep. Based on my literature, it's about one, to, one building to 21 buildings maximum. Okay. Right? Okay. But you're not really capturing the, the landscape. Yep. Right? If your surveys are mostly either university campuses or um, downtown areas... Yep. then your conclusions will apply only to university yep. campuses and downtown areas. Yep. You're not going to be able to ac- account for the fact that cities are hugely heterogeneous. Yeah. Right? There's, it, there's you know, all this variation in cities. This, this is a bit of an aside, but um, I it, this kind of reminds me of, um, there is a passage in um, Speaker for the Dead by Austin Scott Card mm-hmm. where 
because um, Speaker for the Dead. I mean, if you're, are you familiar with it? I've read it. Yes, you've, you've read it. Yeah. So yes, I probably know which I passage. I quite like that one. I think. Okay. I think it's one of the you, you, not one of my favorite books. Oh, it's probably Tom. my single favorite book from the Endeverse, actually. Okay. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but so so you will have read the the passage that I'm talking about. But um, the context of Speaker for the Dead is uh, it takes mm-hmm. place on a planet, right? This is a future where Earth, where humans have colonized other planets, yes. and this takes place on a planet that um, contains the only other sentient species, or mm-hmm. Yeah, the only other <coughs> living sentient species that mankind has discovered. And yes. um, they are, I think, I can't remember, they are, there's an official name for them, but everybody in on this planet mm-hmm. refers to them. The Endiverse. <laughs> everybody else refers to them as the piggies because mm. they look like pigs or what human think, yes. humans think of as pigs, right? Um, yes. And naturally, because they are the only other living sentient species in the Endiverse, um, there are scientists studying these, yes. studying these, um, this this population organisms. Yes. Yep. And because they want to avoid um, a xenocide, right? Which is mm-hmm. the title of the third book. Ha 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 ha. Yes. Um, they want to avoid a situation mm. where humans accidentally <coughs> kill the entire population of piggies. Right, mm-hmm. access to them, like research access to them, is extremely limited. Yes. So there are lots of rules set out about what you can and cannot do, and things like that. And <coughs> naturally, the scientists <coughs> on this planet, they, um, they are, they have privileged access, right? But yep. it's still limited by the rules, and they publish all this research, and then other scientists are saying stuff like, "Oh, but this is not sufficient. This is, you know, you can't." Um, we we can't do anything with this information. You need to get more research. And then there is a, a short little portion where um, it's it's styled as a message from one of the scientists to a scientist on a different planet. And it mm-hmm. says something like, you have to understand that we are operating in a very limited context. And it it's really like saying, you know, I am, I, I as a scientist, I give you access to humans, but strictly on a university campus. Right. And if that was all of humanity that you ever saw, you would conclude that humans began life as like (laughs) fully formed, you know, intellectuals. They... Sure. After four years, they disappear, right? (laughs) Or potentially, you know, they disappear and then, like, new individuals come in and at some point, they become professors <laughs> who educate, you know, or, yeah, inculcate, like, a very strange set of values into yes. the new incoming group. And this is also sort of, you know, draws back onto our earlier discussion about algorithms. Mm, yes, Right, yeah. algorithms are just sort of the, the the broader portion of this, right? Correct. In in, in any research, you sure. have to, and then so I'll let you go back to the quote later on. Yeah. You know, you have to be aware of your sample biases. Correct. Right, Correct. and this is not to knock any of the research that my colleagues in America are doing. It's just that that's all the data that we currently have access to. 
yeah, mostly I mean, from America. Academics exist in an ecosystem, right? Like if yeah. a, in the beginning, this is what you have. You have case studies. Then it mm-hmm. takes time for the larger scale or you know larger scope studies to appear because until the case studies happen, it's not clear whether there is something of interest. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. so back to the quote. Yes. Yeah, back back to the quote. I mean, I, I don't remember the details of it, but basically, you know, as a as a scientist studying this environment and having no access to the rest of humanity, you would conclude mm-hmm. that that uh, humans never form stable family units, right? <laughs> that, um, yeah, I mean. You you just have no idea of like all the other information that you need to yes. to describe this species, right? Yes, and um, and that's really the that's I mean this is often cited as you know a problem with so many studies that require human subjects that happen on mm-hmm. on college campuses. Firstly, because either you're Psychology, surveying the college, yeah, either you're surveying the college population. Or mm-hmm. even if you're drawing from outside the college population, you're surveying the population of a college town, yes. which is often not representative of many other places. That's right. right. Either a college town or a city, and then you, you are leaving out a whole swath of the population that doesn't live in one of those environments. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I mean, yeah. even cities alone are, you know, and living in Singapore, this is something that, that I think everyone innately understands. It's hugely heterogeneous. Yes, right. You correct. have some areas that are built up. You have some areas that are less built up. You have, you know, places where there are parks close to, uh, cl- close to, to, to estates, areas that are much more isolated from parks. You have high rise, low rise, medium rise, you know, and all this sort of, at some point, you're know, going back to, to bird collisions, there has to be some sort of, you know, linkage between mm-hmm. the way a city looks right. and where birds are going to die. Right. <laughs> the, the sort of the deathscape of birds. <laughs> Ouch. The landscape of death is, is what I was trying to call Okay. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. So but, you what know, did so, you... So, so, so I mean, yeah. So you know, this is sort of the, what I initially talked about in my proposal, which is that mm-hmm. this is a, a, a topic that really we we know surprisingly little about because mm-hmm. you know so little research has been conducted into this this topic from mm-hmm. outside uh, the Americas. Right. Right, and you know, it's it's quite rare that you you know you you can say that it, uh, 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 you know. South America, we we know quite a lot about South America because that mm-hmm. this, that's an area also where you know relatively little is known. Mm, but yeah. you know, in this case, we we know much more about dynamics of South America than we do about Asia, right? And you know, I mean, I can say with some level of certainty that there have only been four papers published on bird building collisions in five papers published on bird building collisions in Asia, mm-hmm. three of which are from. Uh, one of which is from Japan, two from mm-hmm. South Korea, and two okay. from Singapore by me. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's that's your five, you know. Okay. <laughs> so so there there is a huge knowledge gap, and so you mm-hmm. know, I mean, just just 
the the problem also is really figure out a way to analyze this data in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the reason why the Americans have adopted this sort of granular approach by you mm-hmm. know going sort of building to building for a very small number of buildings is because, mm-hmm. um, and this is a problem with with statistics and and, and data analysis. If you're going to apply traditional linear modeling, linear regression modeling, okay, right, you need a very specific type of data, right. You need data I, I know nothing with... about stats, by the way, so... Okay, this is, so this is going to be a bit of a crash course. Now, okay. we... W- there there are many ways to collect data, mm-hmm. right? Some ways are, I wouldn't say better, but more structured than others. Mm-hmm. So if I'm doing an experiment, I'll okay. have a control, I'll have yeah. an experimental setup, right? Yeah. And then I'll, I'll, I'll run my treatments and, uh, you know, no treatment on the control. So the control represents what would happen if something is not treated, right? Okay. And my experimental setup, you know, is where I apply the treatment. If I don't see any, if I don't see any significant difference in the control, that means that there is no effect. There's an absence. Okay. Right. If I see a difference from the control, that's a a presence or yep. a, you know a positive in a sense. Yeah. Right. So in most controlled studies, right, mm-hmm. you will have a series of true presences or true okay. positives, and okay. you have a series of true absences. Or yep. true negatives, yep. right? And of course, this comes into the whole type one, type two error. You know, false yep, positive, false negative, etc., etc. You're going to have yep. this this rate of false and negative, false positive, false negatives, right? Yep. And so on and so forth. Now, this is what the Americans have been doing, right? By surveying a fixed number of buildings mm-hmm. systematically over a fixed period of time, mm-hmm. they can tell exactly when, on this day, there were no dead birds. On this day, there was one dead bird, and right. so on and so forth. Right. They have a series of presence and absence records. Mm-hmm. Now there are also false negatives, right? Because I what was if a bird is scavenged? Right. Yeah. What if say a bird died and then either a cat made off with it or a cleaner right. disposed of it or it was scavenged positives? by a hawk? Uh, unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I was just wondering about that. Like do you ever get a case of like oh this bird Actually, yes. dead? Yes. But, uh, okay. uh, no, if a bird if a bird uh collides with a building somewhere else but uh-huh. doesn't die immediately and then flies ah. elsewhere and dies there. That's a false positive. Right, right. Okay. Yeah? Makes sense, right? That makes sense, yeah. Okay. But regardless of the false negatives and the false positives, the quality of data that the Americans have because of the, the approach they adopted is fairly high. Now, mm-hmm. compare that to my approach where it's just, if you see a dead bird, call me. <laughs> yeah. All right? It is completely... The opposite of systematic. It is yeah. unstructured. It's random. Yeah, correct. Right. And so analyzing this kind of data becomes very complicated because I cannot apply a linear model to this. Mm-hmm. I cannot run a... Reg- I, can, I cannot basically plot my occurrences on a graph right. and draw a straight line through it because right, right. it violates so many assumptions right. of what a linear model is. You are not capturing the totality of... The f- that's right. Of yeah, okay. Right. You're not caught capturing half all of, the data. Basically, you you don't half know of my data what, is missing. Yeah, and I don't, you don't I know don't which one. I don't know. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Right. So this is a big problem with with you know uh, uh, unstructured approaches towards data collection, which mm-hmm. is a big problem with citizen science. Or well, citizen mm-hmm. science has become a bit out of fashion. We now call it community science. Okay. Because you know citizen science has this implication of citizenship, and yeah. in America, this is a particularly hairy issue. Yeah. Um, 
But okay, so so in community science, where you know it's just I depend on a whole bunch of yahoos. Well, that's not a very pleasant way to put it. But <laughs> untrained amateurs uh, uh, expertise, amateurs, yeah, to yep. to you know collect data and to report this data. By nature, community science, uh, you know, outputs are to some extent unstructured. Yes, you can have mm-hmm. more structured approaches towards citizen science or community science mm-hmm. reporting, but by and large, there will be this element of uncertainty, mm-hmm. right? As a result yeah. of this inability to capture the absence data. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, this is a problem, right? And this is a problem that the Americans have not thought about because that's not how their approach has really been, 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 been going recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a problem I've had to hash out because... This is my data, right? Uh, yeah. It's garbage. <laughs> I, okay, that's again being very harsh, but you know, it's it's difficult to pass. And yeah. so, you know, this 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 solution really came out of you know I was just whining to a bunch of ecologist friends, <laughs> going, <laughs> yeah. oh, you know, poor me, my oh, my poor data. Oh, I'll never get this published. <laughs> and then a, a colleague of mine said, "Have you thought about niche modeling?" And I was like, "Okay, wait, hang on, what? The, okay, so niche modeling is." is a very broad field. But mm-hmm. basically what niche modeling is, is that it is a suite of methods mm-hmm. uh, used by ecologists primarily to predict mm-hmm. where animals occur based on where you've seen them. Right. Okay. So, okay, so, so, so niche modeling includes linear modeling. Right, uh-huh. linear modeling is part of the niche modeling toolkit. Yeah. And for that's where you have, you know, for example, uh, you're doing a say, I want to know where these beetles occur, mm-hmm. so I do a whole bunch of systematic surveys to know where they are and aren't, and mm-hmm. I can use linear modeling to predict mm-hmm. where the sort of overall distribution pattern of beetles are. Yeah, but this isn't always the case for most animals, right? Most animals yeah. are secretive and hidden in the forest; you can forget about it, right? Um, and so there is a whole branch of niche modeling that uses algorithmic uh, approaches towards mm-hmm. modeling distributions. And one of okay. the big ones that uh, is really, really popular because it's very easy to use, but which means it's often easily abused, is called maximum entropy. All right. It's, it's, a, comp- it's, a, it's a fancy sounding name, but it's actually really, really simple. Maximum entropy or max ent basically okay. asks this one question. What is the probability of an organism occurring in this one patch or one pixel, given okay. a whole bunch of predictor uh, variables like temperature, right. like rainfall, like this and that? Right. Right, and it's basically running a machine learning algorithm in mm-hmm. order to predict the the coefficients or the loadings of each right. variable, such that it maximizes the entropy of the output model relative mm-hmm. to the null prediction of you know equal uh, right. equal likelihood across the map right and and the null prediction is the Just prediction con- that, uh, uniform n- that nothing happens i mean relative no, that, to your that, control or that the distribution of the organism is uniform right okay okay right. that That's makes sense null. that makes right. sense is that across yep. the the landscape that i'm investigating the probability of ev- the, of of the organism occurring on any single pixel is 0.5 that's my right name. okay okay that makes sense and yeah so what MaxN does is it computes a model, right, using machine learning algorithms, which I'm not going to get into because I don't understand mm-hmm. it personally myself, <laughs> okay. right, such that the model deviates the least from the null. Right. That means it's got the least amount of it's 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 the most uh, it's it's you know it's Occam's razor. It's it's the most conservative kind of yeah yeah 
estimate. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and, and, and the reason why Maxon is popular is because it's designed to account for the fact that, I mean, you know, true presence and true absence data is really hard to come by. Right, and so what it does is it takes in a whole bunch of presence-only records, and it then uses that to calculate uh, the, the 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 probability distribution mm-hmm. of an organism across a space. Right, and and my colleague was like, you know, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. If you can use maximum entropy mm-hmm. to take a bunch of observation records of living animals, and then correlate that against a bunch of environmental predictors, why not use it for dead animals? That makes sense. It makes sense, right? It, yeah. And it's, it's, it's one of those logical leaps that doesn't really occur to you until you're confronted with this, with this problem. It's one of those things that y- because it's not already done, you don't think about it. But once yeah. it's suggested, it's really obvious. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so my, my colleague was like, maybe try this. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know? This Ding! could work. The light bulb. Yep. And, you know, no, literally no one else in the world has made this connection yet. So, mm-hmm. okay, I, I'm going to caveat this. Other, other researchers working on similar problems have already made this, 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 this paradigm leap, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there was a paper on roadkill okay. uh, in California that used this. Not in the best way, not the most rigorous analysis, but it's still, you know, reasonable. It's still analysis using maximum right. entropy. And they were able right. to predict, you know, which areas had higher higher risk of, of roadkill mm-hmm. uh, and what the drivers of roadkill were. Apparently, it's like right. trees uh, along huh. the road that cause high... Because, well, but, makes you know, sense. What, what, well, I didn't like that study because they didn't really go into the species level. Which is right. really the sort of level which, of granularity you which need. Which is necessary, I mean, if you're making assumptions about... Because it relates to habitats, behaviours and... Yes. And things like that, yeah. Correct. So, but regardless, right, you know, it's it's certainly not the first time someone is applying this to think about death. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but it really is the first time this is being applied to specifically bird-building collisions. And so it's like, I need to get on this. The problem is, you know work gets in the way, life gets in the way. And mm-hmm. so finally, when I took this course on spatial modeling, I was like, yes, this is the push I need. This is the time I need to sit down, think about this properly, figure out niche modeling, because, you know, it's not my field of expertise, mm. yeah. right? And get something done and publish this in a reasonable journal. Yep. Sounds sounds and good. So, so this is... Yep. So this is this is basically what's been occupying the last uh, couple of weeks of my life, but mm-hmm. you know the the results are, I, I would say, surprising, mm-hmm. really, really, really unexpected in some cases. Okay. Um, and this is just you know preempting the publication, so this is all, <laughs> all right, uh, in preprint form, shall we say, or pre podcast, <laughs> preprint podcast form. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, all right. So I mean the 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 one thing that at least we know from studies in the, in the Americas is that different species respond differently to okay. cities, right? right? The risk loadings or the risk factors for right. for birds differ from species to species. And that, okay. that, that I mean, goes without saying, yep. right? A pigeon is not going to behave the same way as an eagle. Right, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, yep. and, and to, a, to a very large extent, we do see this with, with the data set here. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, 
pitters, which are these you know, colourful groundling birds that I'm working on for my dissertation. So <laughs> the, the good thing is because pitters make up at least a, a good quarter of my data set, I'm hoping mm-hmm. to turn this into a dissertation chapter as well. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, sort of killing, well, killing many into- birds with <laughs> one... With, <laughs> with, with, I mean, this is a... This idiom the is most basically literal made for... Yeah. Yeah, it's made for Killing your Killing 215 birds with one stone. Would it be a stone or would it be like a specific type of building? With one analysis. Killing 215 birds with one analysis. I okay. think that is the best way to describe this. Okay. So, um, pittas, which are, you know, these, these ground-dwelling, really colourful, beautiful birds, mm-hmm. uh, make up about a quarter of the data set. Um, okay. Almost half, <coughs> almost half of the migrant data set, which is really, right. really surprising. Um and uh, two factors drive the collisions. One is building density, which mm-hmm. okay, so more buildings. In, the 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 sort the okay. I'm gonna have, uh, have to scrap this carefully. The higher the building footprint per pixel, mm-hmm. right, the more likely they are to die. Okay, what do you mean by building footprint okay. per pixel? Right. So this this is where we get into a bit of hairy technicalities. Okay. How do you quantify building size? Mm, yeah, I, I remember this discussion offline. Um, I think we yes, but let let okay. Let me let me try, <laughs> let me try and um, rehash what we were talking about. Right, so you're talking about given uh, let's say a square on a on a if you lay a grid on a map, right yes. of Singapore, and that grid has many squares. Let each square is a is a pixel, essentially. Yes, right. Um, how do you describe, how do you determine what is, how much building is in that pixel? <laughs> how much right? building is yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. And, and that's not a straightforward problem because, I mean, obviously, there if you think about... There are many ways to conceive of this problem or correct. many ways to describe this problem, right? So, I mean, so, just, just going into, you know, yep. cutting away all the, all the, all the, 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 the nitty gritty. Yeah. If I look at a building... Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's say I just have. Uh, it does, never mind the pixel element of this. If I just have a single building, a, a, yep. say a block. Yep. Right. You know, a rectangular block. Yep. In in space. Right. There mm-hmm. are a million and four ways I can conceive of, or at least you know, a, 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 a more than one way to to describe the building size. Mm-hmm. I can describe the volume of the building. Yep. I can describe the floor area of the building. Yep. I can describe the surface area of the building as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are all different ways of Correct. measuring the same object. Yeah. And so when it comes to parameterizing, you know, a city, yep. right, you will inevitably run into this problem. How do right. you know what metrics do I use to estimate building size? And so mm-hmm. the answer is all of them. <laughs> I mean, that is the answer. All, because you you really need all three variables like in the equation, right? But yes. there is also the other um, wrench in the works, which is that the footprint, literally mm-hmm. the amount of space it takes up on the ground, is much yes. easier to find than the volume or the surface area. Yes. Right, uh, and so surface I've area will be volume. the hardest. Yeah. Actually, yes. Okay, so yep. volume and surface area requires one important variable that I don't have. The Z-plane or the height. Yep. Yep. Which, unfortunately, this data set does not include, so I've had to leave all of that out, which is yeah. a major limitation. Yep. But what can you do? Right? I mean, you even if you... Have. 
even if you had the height, I mean, that would give you effectively a box model for the for the building. Yes. Right? But that leaves out, like, like Ion Orchard is a bizarrely shaped building. Correct. So well, okay, has... I mean, this, this actually comes into the, mm-hmm. the question then of spatial scale. And this is something yep. that we were talking about just now, right? The, the, the yes. idea of, you know, building-level heterogeneity versus city-level heterogeneity. Yeah. When you go up a spatial scale, you have mm-hmm. to make assumptions. N- yep. No two ways about it. You're, yep. you're going to be generalizing. You're going to be simplifying. You're going to be, Correct. you know, glossing over certain variant va- variations. And so, yep. so if I'm conducting a study where I measure 21 buildings at a maximum at, at any one go, you can describe I all have, 21 very well. Yes, correct. I can describe the complexity, the heterogeneity at the building scale extremely well. Yeah. Right. But what this leaves out is you know, the true heterogeneity of the city because I'm yep. only sampling 21 buildings. Yeah. Right. And so when I go one step up to the, the city level, right, mm-hmm. and, and really no one has really looked at this at the city level and city being the whole of Singapore. Yeah. And small as Singapore is for a city, it's fairly substantial. We are yes. just smaller than the five New York boroughs. Yes, about correct. fifty square kilometers smaller than the, the New York, all five New York boroughs. Well, I mean, I've I've right. always been, I've, I okay, I mean, as a Singaporean who's lived in New York, I've always been very yes. iffy about this stat because I believe the area that's commonly cited for the five New York boroughs does not include water, if I'm not mistaken. Fair. I mean, in yeah. this case, that makes sense, right? Yeah, in this case, correct. I'm looking at just the built-up area yeah. of. Uh, and I'm not look, talking about you know over water extent. I'm just talking yep. about built up urbanized extent. Correct. And I think in and Singapore, the area that's commonly cited seven two five km square. Yeah, that includes like all the non, not just non residential, but like non built up area, including reservoirs, um, yes. uh, nature, nature reserves. reserves. Yeah, uh, army camps. Yep. I mean, I, army camps are yep. built up, but like army firing ranges, things like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. nonetheless, uh, the I mean the point is that it's like Singapore is bigger than most cities. Yes. So or, no, yeah. it's comparable in size to. Uh, many cities, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 it's not most cities. It's like Seoul and Tokyo. Yeah, and correct. Tokyo it's, is I think probably bigger. London is bigger if you it's, Greater London as well. Yeah, it's comparable to many cities. I think most is yes. pushing it because of uh, China and India, well, yeah, <laughs> which have massive cities. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so when you when you go to this the scale of the city, you obviously you know if okay, put it this way. Uh, uh, one way of, of of conceiving this that I've done before is number of buildings, right? So mm-hmm. all these studies, you know, twenty one to twenty one buildings, uh, they say, oh, you know, and and the, the the most recent study on this looked at forty sites across the entire North America, including one or two sites in Mexico. So forty times, say you know, ten. That's mm-hmm. four hundred buildings. Mm, yeah. Right. Okay. Singapore has a hundred thousand buildings. <laughs> yeah. Right. Even if I simplify this by merging buildings with a shared boundary, and you know this makes sense, right? So if if yep. say two buildings share the same edge, I'll merge them together. That's right. still seventy thousand buildings. Right. It's a lot. <laughs> you yep. know, this is a spatial scale that's an order of magnitude, literally yep. Yep. higher yep. than any other study that's come before this. Okay. Right. And if I were to try to capture the heterogeneity of every single building <laughs> in this 70,000 building polygon data set, I would die. Yes. Or at least I, you know, you, the, well, the, you the would be dead before you would, heat de- you would be right. dead the before you would be done. Yeah. Death. Yep. That's right. This project would never end. Yep. So, you know, okay. So certain assumptions have to be made, right? Yep. If I included height, it would have to be a block model. 
But in this case, mm-hmm. I don't have height data, so that's <laughs> that's out of the question anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that solved a big problem I could have, <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, right? In a manner yeah. of speaking. Um, but yeah, so so where was I before I got sidetracked? So yeah, so building building size, right? So when I talk about footprint or uh, uh, density based on building footprint, I'm talking about within a single pixel, how much area is building. Okay. So what did you go right? with? Okay, actually, no. Okay, so so I've talked. We talked about three different ways of looking at building size: surface mm-hmm. area, volume, and floor area. Mm-hmm. Right. When we talk then about when we think about it in pixel space, mm-hmm. yeah, there are there, there's a, a few more complexities to bring about as well. Yep. One is, what is the total building area contained within the pixel? Mm-hmm. The other one is, what is the building area intersecting with the pixel? So part of that could be outside the pixel as well. Right. Right, and so these are different ways of just you know, it's just different ways of conceiving how, or, or right. you know quantifying how building area is, and it gets. I mean, in most cases, it's 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 you know it's not a big problem if your buildings are yeah. small and you have very few buildings. That's not a big problem, but right. the problem comes when you have mega buildings like yeah. Changi Airport, mm-hmm. uh, and what's that 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 Singapore Sports arena thing um, I don't even know what stadium it's I mean it's just stadium <laughs> the stadium right the national yeah. stadium or the new yeah. whatever the national stadium is called these days right yeah. these present problems because these are mega structures yep. that occupy multiple pixels and pixel space right okay no I I, yeah. I see I see the problem because or my, my when you describe the problem at first I was like doesn't intersection just mean you, you end up double counting but you end up with a problem where it's not just spanning two pixels, it's spanning nine pixels, let's say, and now you yeah. have a completely contained pixel in the middle that technically records no collisions, yes. but it's part of a building, right? Okay. Yes, absolutely right. So right. so these are, I mean, again, this is just technicality, but it really does show you that space is complicated. Yeah. Or at least <laughs> urban spaces are really complicated. And and, and then you own, no, okay, so, so never mind just looking at uh, 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 the building size for that mm-hmm. pixel, mm-hmm. right? This is something that I haven't really. I, I've spent the whole of last night working on this, and I'm, I'm hoping to run it today. Okay. Um, what about the neighborhood? Okay. Right. So, for example, if I have one pixel with mm-hmm. like twenty buildings, but oh, really, really, really. Okay. No, one pixel with a really large building. Okay. But all my surrounding pixels are small buildings. Right. Or what if I have a, a pixel with a small, single small building and all my surrounding pixels are large buildings? Right. Might that have an effect as well? I mean, intuition says yes. But right? obviously, you need to actually have to the data. Yeah. Yes. So that's also what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to suss out as well, right? Which is that, you know, okay, does the, the, the neighborhood affect the performance of the one pixel? Right. Yeah, and so what? What the way to do this is that you take this pixel value of mm-hmm. interest, and you add all the surrounding pixel values to this one pixel as well. Right. Okay. Which is a computer. Which is a you know, if you're doing this manually, is is a nightmare. But computers can do this very quickly. Yes. Right, because it's basically okay. Uh, in Python terms, and this is something that you might you might appreciate better. Right, I, a map I've... is an array. Uh. Yep. Right. A map is literally an, an X by Y array. It's a two-dimensional array. It's a two-dimensional yeah. array of pixels. 
right? Yep. Each pixel is one value in the array, yep. or it's, it's one cell in the array, and each mm-hmm. array cell can be like a, itself a matrix or a vector of values, yeah. right? Yep. Depending on what, what variables you're looking at. Yep. That's it. And so basically, you're just taking for each position in the array, I sum mm-hmm. up the surrounding or the adjacent values mm-hmm. uh, for a certain neighborhood size. Yeah. I mean, this is a fairly yeah. common um, code challenge. Like given mm, a two-dimensional right. array, yep. you know, write a, write a function that takes like yep. X and Y and returns you like the sum of the surrounding pixels is like a fairly common mm. thing. Yeah. 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 And so, so you know, this is, this is basically what, what uh, uh, you know, what we call focal statistics. Okay. Um, it, 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 it's, it's basically a blurring function, actually. Yes. Yes. That's a good point. Yeah. Right, it is effectively a blurring function. Yeah. So you, you you're playing a Gaussian. This is a Gaussian blur, actually. I think, isn't it? it I, I think so. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what kind of blur it is, but I remember okay. doing this for CS50. <laughs> so, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so yeah. So you know, and and when when you reduce down all these you know uh, geospatial analyses to mm-hmm. basic computational functions, it's actually really really cool when you yeah. just think about geographical space as a bunch of pixels. <laughs> yeah. That you can you can pass out in Python. Not sure if "cool" is the adjective I would attach I, to. I find it yeah. cool. I find it yeah. you know, it, it becomes tractable programmatically. Yes, I think that's that's what's <laughs> interesting about it, right? Because yeah. you are turning it from a from from an abstract problem into a quantitative problem, or you're well, turning from a qualitative no. to a. Yeah, to a, to a, to by a, abstracting it into yeah. a quantitative version. Yeah, right? I You're think simplifying that's, that's the, the complexity yeah. of space yeah. into this two-dimensional grid that yeah. you can then analyze. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there are problems, uh, we've, we've discussed this extensively over multiple episodes about the problems of simplification, mm-hmm. but it becomes a really powerful tool for doing spatial analyses. You know, and and I think really that this is something that comes out of my training as an ecologist, as a biogeographer. Mm-hmm. We very often ignore space, mm-hmm. spatial heterogeneity, and this is to our detriment, right? You know, right. okay. So going back to 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 the pillars. Oh my God, we've drifted far, 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 far. Yeah, away. that's fine. But so so basically, what what I found is that two two things affect pillars especially significantly. The first one is okay. building density, which is uh-huh. for each pixel. Pixels with very high building footprints tend to kill more birds, which makes mm-hmm. sense intuitively. Mm-hmm. But the one that does not make intuitive sense is that build pixels with high levels of blue light pollution kill more birds. Okay. This was like, what the fuck is this? You know, this All was right. this was like, this is this was a, a, a data layer I threw in just for shits and giggles. Right. right, because there have been studies in the US showing that higher levels of light pollution are correlated with more building collisions. Okay, you know, so what I did was, and this is something that I don't think many people have done because also of data availability. Uh, Tim Copra, who is an astronaut with NASA, when mm-hmm. he was at the International Space Station, just by pure, you know, pure serendipity and luck, as he was floating over Singapore, he realized there were no clouds. So he took his DSLR with a 400 millimeter Nikon lens, took a photo. Okay. Right. That's, it's as simple as that. I'm, I think I did the Nikon sound, shutter sound fairly accurately. And okay. So, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you know, and he uploaded the photo to Flickr on the NASA, the NASA Flickr account. Right. And it's like, that's the end of it. And then I looked at it, it was like, holy shit, I can estimate light pollution from this photo. Mm-hmm. Because a DSLR CCD, right? Or is it CCD? Uh, a CMOS uh, sensor. C- yeah, yeah. 
The sea well, moss and the captures uh, true color. Uh, it's, right? it's it's been so long since I looked yeah, at true. this kind of stuff. I, I, but I yeah, no. But I mean, it's a, the it's a good point because true, true this, color information. Yeah, because this is this is this comes back to uh, it's another layer of abstraction, right? Which is um, mm-hmm. interesting enough. Which is what's the sensor inside a camera doing? It mm-hmm. is capturing um, basically the. You know, light goes through a lens, it gets focused onto a point on the sensor. Well, not onto a point, onto a sensor, right? And then the sensor yes. breaks it up into... It It has, well, it has multiple sensors, effectively. Yes. What we think of yes. as the sensor, right, has multiple sensors, and each one represents a pixel. Yes. Right? And it's just taking color at this spot, at this spot, at this spot. And then when you put them all together, you get the picture. But It's, it's not just color, it's taking... Red, green, red, green, blue. blue. Yeah, yeah, yes. correct. Yeah. Which are you know, I mean, so you're limited by these spectra because yeah. DSLRs have a filter to filter out UV, yes. which I would really have liked, but you know, you know yeah. beggars can't be choosers. So yeah. what I did was I took this photo of Singapore at night mm-hmm. uh, from about 2016, I think, and I okay. turned it into three different layers or well, four different layers. The first being red, second green, third blue, mm-hmm. and the third layer is just. Uh, sigma red green blue or the sum of red green and blue yeah right which, which gives is what you would see no basically. it's no not really it's the sum means that we're looking at the total amount of output right right okay okay makes sense light yeah. output now I'm right? thinking across I'm thinking all spectra in, I'm thinking yeah like no actual color terms no yeah no that, that's, that's about, looking at band combinations but yeah. this is looking at just at the raw so the I mean this is, this is another, right so another yeah. way of thinking of this is that a picture that we see is an array of arrays, right? It's an yep. array of red, green, and blue. Yeah. Each uh, yep. red, green, and blue is itself an array, right? It's but a, in this it's case, a sum I'm of arrays. Summing up. That's <laughs> right. I'm, you know, it's, it's an array. It's, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. No. No, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah? It's, yeah. In this case, we're taking the sum of the array values for each array position. I mean, be, because when you think about RGB, um, I mean, mm-hmm. it is a sum in the sense of... Mm, well, in the sense of <laughs> it's complicated, frequen- right? In the sense of frequency, but not in amplitude, right? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. So now Let's... we're looking at the the total amplitude of light. Yeah, amplitude all rather than frequency. Three yeah. color okay. spectra. Okay. Right. So that's yeah. those are the four the four variables I was able to extract from this one photo, which you know, hey, for a single photo, pretty good, <laughs> pretty good utility, yeah. right? And so I was expecting total light pollution output, or you know, basically R plus G plus B. Mm-hmm. To give the most, uh, or to to be correlated with collision likelihoods, turns out it's just blue. Interesting. And you know, it's really bizarre, right? Because what we see in Singapore is that blue light pollution is actually fairly rare. Uh, for okay. now, okay, okay, right? Because our street lamps are high pressure sodium vapor lamps. They are. They are warm. Yeah. We are red, orange, yep. right? So they yep. basically emit. From Very the red end blue. of the spectrum, yeah, and ex- yeah, extremely little blue. Blue light pollution comes from things like floodlights, yeah, which is white, right? So, so yeah, light with high levels of of blue tend to be white. I I would okay. I mean, there. Uh, yeah. Okay. No. I mean, camera yeah. one. <laughs> this is like. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, That's right. So camera it's, one. It's, yeah. It's your it's your black box radiation, right? I mean, yeah. This this kind of it's it's <laughs> not. Uh, instinctive until you yep. actually go down to the level of the it's one of those things of 
you know, if you study only physics, you learn yes. one side of it. If you study only cinematography, you learn the other side of it. You yes. kind of have to be in between to really make sense of, of what's going on. So in cinematography, yep. right, you think of warm as red, cool as blue, right? Yes. And then the the color warmth goes from red through white through blue. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's actually happening is you have... It's, it's black box radiation. So you yes. have um, a black... Uh, black box, black body radiation. My God, black body. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yes, black body. So my it's, God. <laughs> yeah, you have a black body, right? And you you mm-hmm. you heat it up. Um, mm-hmm. you just apply as much temperature as, as as you as much heat as much thermal energy as thermal you can energy. to it. Yep. And then at some point, it starts radiating. Um, yes. fre- frequencies, and yep. I mean this is where the term color temperature comes from, right? Because you yes. you take a black body and you heat it up to two thousand eight hundred Kelvin. And you start mm-hmm. seeing red, right? Yep. And then as you add more thermal energy to it, you the the black body starts radiating at higher and higher frequencies. But the yes. lower frequencies remain. So yep. you yep. start yep. seeing the red first. Then mm-hmm. if you go through the, the color spectrum from red to green to blue, right? You start seeing the orange and then the yellow come in. But they're always being added onto the red. Yes, it's an additive right. effect, right? Yeah, yeah Correct. exactly. And then when you see green, it gets added onto the red, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why you never see green black body radiation. Because yes. green never occurs in isolation. Well, I mean, right? this is also the thing about, we talked about hummingbird colors. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right, the spectral I, colors as well. Uh, okay. I don't remember anyway, this. Sorry. Yes. Uh, but yeah, anyway. I don't remember this part. I, I, okay. I vaguely remember that we discussed it at Talk some point but I don't remember anything that we said about okay. it yeah and then <laughs> as you progress through and you get to the you know Roy G. Biv blue indigo violet mm-hmm. right um, at the point where you have equal you, you never really have equal amounts of all I think I'm not, not too sure about this no I don't think you do right no. yeah but at the point where you have all all the colours uh, in mm-hmm. some proportion that's where you get white or something that looks white yes right and then as you continue to heat it up, right? And so at the point, you are looking at something like 58,000, 58,000, 5,000, uh, 5,800 Kelvin. How about that? Mm-hmm. And do the, the American way. 5,800 <laughs> Kelvin, 6,500 Kelvin is a bit, a bit more blue. And then as you yep. keep adding, right? As you keep adding thermal energy, um, it gets hotter. And yep. at that point, you go past the visible light spectrum and then you're adding frequencies mm-hmm. In the ultraviolet range. Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's how you your get... Your crash course in black body this radiation. Is, yes, your crash course in black body radiation. So that's what color temperature actually means. Mm-hmm. That's why you never see... That's why, you know, the sky goes from like blue, um, red to blue, but never through green. Yes. <laughs> the green is there. The green is there, but it's just always mixed with red. Yes. So you never see it. So I mean, this this is the so this is the the really cool you know and so we most of our blue light pollution comes from things like floodlights, yep. or things like um, big projection screens that you would see yep. in Orchard Road, yeah, and the CBD, yeah, right. And so that's yep. primarily where our blue light pollution is concentrated in golf courses, mm-hmm. stadiums, uh, downtown areas, uh, yep. Geylang. Uh, Jalan Besar, 
specifically, right? Uh, and Orchard Road and uh, the CBD. I'm, I'm curious about where like LED lighting plays into this because LEDs That's have a different... exactly where I'm going with this. Right? LED, LEDs, it's not black body radiation, exactly. No. They have a different but they spectrum. Emit, but they right, emit blue but light. Because... Yeah, because yep. they're coded to uh, emit white light. But LEDs give you the remarkable ability to control what spectra you emit in. Right, exactly. Which, yeah. which, is, which is where I'm going with this, right? Okay. So yep. the problem we're facing right now is that Singapore wants to change all our street lamps to LEDs. in the next two years to LEDs. Uh-huh. And this and this has already started in some areas. I think parts of Tampines are already uh, using LED lights, I think near the United World College area. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't be yeah. surprised because that's new. That's a newly built yeah. up area. Yeah. Yeah. So that area has already shifted to using LED lights, which is yeah. white, right? Or at least, you know, it, it produces white light. Whiter, and so yeah. therefore, whiter light. And so therefore, yeah. it is producing higher levels of blue light pollution. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. And so given what we know, how is this going to affect where birds die or where pittas specifically die mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. And so this is what I'm currently working on. So this paper is not ready for publication because I'm adding on this bit. Right. Can we forecast where the blue light pollution is going to be? And then can we forecast where the risks are going to, the hotspots are going to be in the next two, three, four, five years? Right. Given the model we have now. Right. I think that's really cool. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I'm super excited by this. right? And then, of course, mm-hmm. other bird species, different loadings. So bitterns, which are these small small herons, are affected mostly by building density, etc., etc., etc. So, you know, and, and uh, the other one, actually, you know, this is the, the, the other one I missed. These are fruit-eating forest pigeons, things like okay. uh, green pigeons and emerald doves. They, and this is, this is vindication because I hypothesize this I prophesize this to you in ecclesiastical terms. Um, all right. I, <laughs> I David prophesize Tani, this. Prophet. That's right. Three years ago, okay. I predicted that these forest-dwelling birds would die in areas that are close to the forest, which is, I mean, yeah, duh. <laughs> but, yep. but, you know, it's one of those things that most people haven't really been thinking about in that, okay, the more fragmented your forests are, the more mm-hmm. likely you are going to see collisions. That was my prediction. Right. Right. And true enough, uh, at least for green pigeons, collisions are associated with forest proximity. So okay. the closer you are to a forest, the more likely the birds are going to collide with the building, which means that if I'm, say, an urban area wedged between two forest patches, for mm-hmm. example, Bukit Batok. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Literally on my right, Bukitima, on my left, Bukit Batok, you're going to see mm-hmm. high levels of collision rates going on there. Okay. Because that's fragmentation, right? right. Where a formerly contiguous piece of forest is fragmented in small pieces. Right. This will also have implications for upcoming developments like uh, the Tanga forest, ta- forest City, a forest town. Right, yeah. Where they're literally building a, 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 a town inside a forest. Forest, yes. Oh, in inverted commas. And so this <laughs> yeah. is, you know... Th- uh, this has very real implications, right, for mm-hmm. how we do urban design, urban planning, and then how we can mitigate these things ahead of time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's basically it, right? Uh, this is this is this is 
been something I've been thinking about for for an unreasonably long amount of time, and I'm just really happy that finally I've got this off my chest, <laughs> and and it's it's something that you know hopefully will have really strong downstream applications as well. I I would hope so because I mean, from what I've seen of from what I've seen of you know what you've described and what you've kind of shown, um, I mean. I wouldn't say it's incontrovertible in 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 the in the true sense of that word, but I mean it's a pretty strong evidence, right? Right. Yeah. Although you know, uh, uh, this summit we can since we're running a bit long, we ah, you know, it's we fine. Can, Just we can run talk long. It's fine. It's like how we can how talk many about in a future episode. It's fine. F- fair. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're making up for lost time. Yeah. But you know, I've also this is something that I've just started to run up against, which is that you know, I'm not someone who's an expert in niche modeling, which is, you know, the primary method that, that is being used to analyze the data set. So mm-hmm. I've reached a stage where I've hit sort of the limit of my expertise. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, you know, and this, this, this happens, you know, when you hit the nitty gritty, right? You know, yeah. a lot of these things at surface level is like, ah, it's fairly easy, you know, just do this, do this, do this. Then you, then you start digging deeper in, into the literature and you're going, huh, am I meeting these assumptions? You know, or is this the best way to assess model fit? And this is an, a whole other area of statistics, right? Yeah. Uh, that that we haven't really talked about. It's that okay, sure, you have assumptions that you have to take into account, blah 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 blah. When 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 you when you run models, but then how do you assess if your mod if your model fits the data, and to what extent? Time to become an expert in niche modeling. Well. So no, so no, 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 no. There's, there's another option. <laughs> okay. It's to find an expert in niche modeling and say, hey, do you want to be a co-author? Yeah, <laughs> that's probably the best way to do it. <laughs> the most parsimonious way to do it. Yeah. So that's exactly what I've done. I reached out to a colleague who is a niche modeler and said, okay, I admit I have limitations to my understanding of niche modeling. Please, for the love of God, can you join in as a as a co- collaborator to help me analyze my data set? Yay. So that's where I am right now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it's it's fun, right? It's and I think this this really should be the sort of the core of what science is. It's it's exciting, it's interesting, it's it's fun. I really enjoy it. It's just a pain in the ass sometimes, but I really, really, really enjoy it. That's why you're doing a PhD yeah. and most people aren't. Uh, fair. <laughs> fair. It's 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 yeah. Fair enough. It's yep masochism it, it is a form of masochism um <laughs> yeah i am i mean the most exciting thing that's happened so far for me is uh is my new monitor setup so, yay i mean we we can continue this we can continue this podcast we can just keep it running if we want to talk about this yeah, let's just go yeah um sure. yeah so i had a i had an originally i had an imac Right in the beginning, there was an yes, iMac. In the be- yeah, it was a. <laughs> and it, it was, was good. a. <laughs> it was good in the beginning. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's. I I got it in mid twenty fourteen, so it's a late twenty thirteen iMac, and yeah. it was really beginning to show its age. I think about twenty seventeen, twenty eighteen, it became nearly unrunnable. Mm. It was just extremely, extremely slow. Yeah. And um, so I bought uh, a one terabyte SSD and I used that as my startup drive and then it became okay. Hmm. So it was like, it was fine, right? You can use it to do most 
normal day stuff. Uh, and maybe a little bit more than that, right? I mean, I was comfortably running Logic on it um, mm-hmm. for a period of time. Like, it was okay with, like, gaming. Um, okay. Although, I mean, depending on, again, who you who you ask, right? If you're asking a hardcore yeah. gamer, it's not okay. Yeah, um, yeah. But <laughs> it could handle, like, Civ and City Skylines at mm-hmm. least until the mid-game. In the late game, right. those games take up so much computational power. It's because they're running simulations, yes. right, all the time. Yes. Yeah, then it would slow down yeah. unbearably. I think I ran a bench- benchmark at one point, and I think um, for Civ, the iMac, it was running at just below 30 frames per second. Oh, um, okay. At the, in, the, in the late game, which is... Mm, it's, not, mm, it's not great. Borderline. Yeah, it's really border- on the borderline of being unplayable. Um, yeah, and then when I was doing my, my boot camp, um, I used iMac for the first six weeks because those six weeks, they are solo projects, right? Solo Mm -hmm. challenges and solo projects. Then when it came to the project weeks, I really had to be in person, um, in the classroom. So I brought my Acer laptop to class. Mm. And the Acer laptop, it's a laptop that I bought for gaming, specifically for gaming. The idea mm-hmm. was that I would never bring it out or at least mm-hmm. do so very rarely. Um, and you can tell that it's not really meant to be used as a portable, like a daily portable right. laptop because of I mean- the size yeah, the, f- the, size, the gaming the laptops weight. aren't built to give the impression of portability. I mean, some of them, some of them are fine. Like if you look at some of the aftershock laptops or the Razer laptops, they are fairly compact, okay. right? They yeah, they have true. the they are close to the form factor of like a MacBook, right? Mm, but right, the, right, right. the Acer the Acer <clears throat> Nitro series is not is massive for what it is. Yeah. yeah. Um. At one point, one of my course mates who had the Razer Blade which is I, I don't know how I feel about that name <sighs> why do they call it the razor blade okay I mean don't answer that question you, so, you ran out of puns to make at some point okay yes. yeah so um, she said like oh, is your laptop 17 inches I'm like no it's 15.4 and she was like <laughs> it's 15.4 and then she put her laptop on top of mine right <laughs> just to for the size contrast and the razor blades if you haven't yep. seen them they're basically the same form factor as the MacBook Pros Right, okay. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, it's, it's astonishing. Like, it's really not made for... It's really not made for portability. It's meant to be, okay, you have a gaming... You want a portable gaming setup, right? Mm-hmm. You can't lug... You don't want to lug around your CPU to your friend's house or whatever, you, you, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's that. That's what it's for. So, mm-hmm. I really didn't want to be in a position where I had to bring out my... Um, where I had to bring out my, my Acer laptop. And obviously, since I bought the iMac, right, my mobile computing needs have grown. Because yes. I got the iMac at a point where it's like, I, uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't really need to travel around with a computer. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I bought a MacBook Pro. Not the new M1 Max. I bought a refurbished 16-inch uh, Intel Mac 2019. Um, the, the late 2019 one. So it's mm. the top of the line, but base model. 
Yes. Yeah, and I bought it refurb, so it was six hundred dollars cheaper. Oh, okay, that's pretty um, substantial. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, um, works well, runs well. I knew there were going to be M1 Max coming out. In fact, I bought this after mm. I, after the M1 Max came out because I wanted to see what yes what they offered. Um, but I think right now for me it's just a bit too much of a risk to switch to an M1 Mac because yep. I'm very dependent on a lot of, I'm still very dependent on a lot of what we call like in quotes pro software. Mm. And I just don't that want to That would take time the, to adjust. Yeah, I just yeah. don't want to have the compatibility issues. We we did have a yeah. student buy an M1 Mac Ooh. and I was helping him to set it up. Uh, and I mean, after the initial hurdle of like, how do you get Intel software to, to run on this thing? It seems yeah. like he has had no issues. Okay. Um, okay. Because you, what you can do is you can run, can, it, it took a moment, but Rosetta doesn't ship with the laptops, with the M1 Max. You have right. to download it. You have to download Ugh, it. Okay. And that took, took a while to figure out. Um, yeah. I guess they assume, probably rightly, <laughs> that most people who buy the M1 Max, either they are pros who want the newest, greatest thing, or they're Prosumers, just normal people. Yeah. yeah, or they're normal mm. people who are just like, oh, it's a new laptop. I need a laptop. I'm just mm. going to buy whatever Apple has now. Yeah. And they're just going to use Safari, Pages, Microsoft Word, the, the, the usual stuff, right? And then you know yes. what? If you're a pro and you need Intel software, you're going to figure out how to run it anyway. So, yeah, you only have yourself to blame if you can't get it to work. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> so let's not, ship, let's not ship Rosetta. The people who need it will find a way to download it and most people yes. don't need it, which is probably Correct. true. Right? Yes. So we managed to get um, Terminal running under Rosetta 2 and then okay. that kind of solves most of the problems. Um, yes. Yeah. But I'm still I'm still kind of hesitant, and honestly, I'll probably run this laptop into the ground, and I'll by that time <laughs> the M1 Max will be mature, uh, yeah. and it will be a much not better... just mature, but also it will have because I think from what I'm seeing, Apple is rolling out M1 starting from the more basic models, so the the 13 inch models, and they're not rolling it out for the 15 and 17 inch 15 inch Fi- models yet. There are no 15 inches left. 16, right, 16, yeah. 16 inch models. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So by that time, right? I mean, mm. on Mac Power users, they were commenting that the, rather giddily because the M1 Macs <laughs> are already so good, but they were commenting right. that these M1 Macs are the slowest ones that will ever exist. Yes, correct. Right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like, okay, yeah. you know what? I'm just gonna avoid all the compatibility issues. I'm gonna get mm-hmm. this Intel MacBook Pro. Patience. It's totally fine. I mean, I was not patient mm-hmm. enough to wait until they had. Yeah, no fair. Like I mean, there, there is one patience, X. and there's also yeah. you know need, right? Which is why yes. I got this shitty twenty. What is it? 2017, 2017 I think. Yeah, which yeah. you know has the shitty butterfly keyboard. Yeah, I okay. I mean, because my machine died. So yeah. As an aside, I, <laughs> I mean, my my students they had a mix of mm-hmm. the old keyboard pre butterfly and mm-hmm. the butterfly keyboard. Oh. Um okay. The pre butterfly keyboard is absolutely the best one to type on. Yes. Right? But I have yeah. to say no, no doubt. I have to say I prefer the butterfly to the one that I have currently. In feel. Oh, really? Not in okay. reliability. Because we know mm. that those things are not reliable. Right? Fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, at least at least not until the the very last the, couple they're of as generations. fragile as butterflies if that's what they meant. <laughs> 
And as, I mean, as someone who's handled butterflies before, you know, oh butterflies man. are fragile as shit. Yeah. So, um, we think that the 2018 versions of the butterfly keyboard are probably okay in reliability, but it's only 2020. Mm. So, we won't know yeah. until, you know, those things have lasted like five years or whatever. I think for yeah. me, what it is, is that if I'm going to have the the butterfly keyboard, right, that has a completely different feel because that's um, the feedback is haptic, right? right. You're not yes. actually yes. depressing the button that much. Mm. The ones on the 2019 MacBook Pros, the travel is fairly shallow. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's not a butterfly mechanism. This is a mechanism. The yes. travel is fairly shallow, and you can really feel the difference when you compare it to for older, older MacBooks from before twenty fifteen. Right, those okay. are just much nicer to type on. But then again, this is yeah. all relative, right? Because some people like shallow yeah. travel, whereas on the other yeah. hand, yeah. I like my mechanical keyboards, <laughs> and I like them. Yeah, I like the clicky clackies, and I, um, I've I've tried both very low um, um, actuation force and higher actuation mm-hmm. forces. I like both for different purposes. Okay. So I think the general thing is I like it when... Uh, so I've, I've used like Gatoron Clears, which I think have a 30 gram actu- actuation force. It's very low. Okay. Um, yeah. The way I would liken it, what I would call it is it's akin to typing, but with a fountain pen. Right, you compare a fountain ah, pen and okay. a ballpoint pen. Yes. Yeah, you really just yes. fly on the keyboard, yeah. and the butterfly keyboard it gives that impression because mm-hmm. of the non-existent travel. Right, it's like you touch yes. it and it's it's there. It's same with the guitar yeah. on clears. For the uh, if if I'm going the other end, I want as much feedback as possible that doesn't mm-hmm. like that isn't like a finger workout. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And like yeah. for me, yeah. this is, it's too, it, for most people, this is Goldilocks. Right? But right. for okay, me, yeah. this is very nondescript typing experience. So anyway, whatever. I'm done complaining <laughs> about the keyboard. Um, anyway. Okay, so your screens are, which you haven't still gotten into. I haven't gotten to that. So now I'm in a situation where I have two laptops, but... Coming from a 27-inch iMac, you really mm-hmm. feel the lack of screen real estate. Yes. And gaming on a gaming on a 15-inch <laughs> screen is, I mean, it's not that it's bad, but again, you can always, you know, you you always want more. Yeah. So I was trying to figure out. Okay, I, I had this idea that I would get one monitor, and you know, it would have more than at least two uh, inputs. I would run yep. both computers into this one monitor, right? And I would just switch between the two inputs. So, the problem is what the Windows um, computer kind of wants from a monitor is very different from what the Mac wants out of a monitor. Oh boy, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, on the latest episode of ATP, they actually discussed this exact problem because <laughs> because uh, Marco Armin is whining about his LG 5K ultrafine monitor. Um, <laughs> so ATP sounds like just basically whining 
about computers. That, that's basically <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, John Syracuse whines yeah. about... Um, his latest computer trouble or his... His well, I mean, they all whine about their they, they all whine about their yeah. latest computer troubles, but yeah. John Syracuse <laughs> whines about things not being perfect. Yes, Marco Armand yes. whines about things not fitting his his, his very perfect. highly specific tastes. Yes, and <laughs> Casey List mostly whines about things breaking. So, um, which may go. or may not be his fault. Like he managed to, <laughs> he managed. Like his watch, most recently his watch unclasped itself and smashed right. onto the ground. Oh, so um, yeah. Or sometimes Casey List whines about his garage door, but that's a that's a whole saga. <laughs> that's a whole saga for another thing. I mean, he he wanted a he 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 built like an um a Raspberry Pi contraption, sure, or an Arduino contraption um to yeah. warn him when when he left the garage door open. Right. And his two co-hosts are like, why can't you just look out the window? Yeah. And he's like, no, but this is fun. Uh, whatever. Uh. <laughs> anyway. Um, I mean, to the, be fair, that's some fun, but yeah. Yeah. So actually, Marco, I'm going to describe this problem quite well, which is that if you are a Mac user and you want an external monitor, you don't have very good choices. Right? Yes, correct. And yeah. it comes down to this, which is your Mac. Um, I mean, you have a Retina screen on your Mac, which mm-hmm. means that the actual like, resolution, so to speak, is doubled from what you normally think of as a, as a... Like, let me put it this way. I'm looking at a 27-inch monitor. It's 2K. Mm-hmm. Right, which means yes. it's two five six zero by one four four is one four forty p, and yes. um, the LG five K, right? What that does is that it has the same um, physical size, but mm-hmm. it has I think four pixels f- for every pixel that I have on this monitor, or something like that. I can't remember the details. Yes, okay, right, okay. So what is one pixel? on most monitors, is four pixels on a retina screen. Yes. And what that does is that it gives you, like, much higher sharpness. Yep. Because you're able to really define the edges that fall in between pixels. What yes, would be correct. in between pixels, right? Um, so are we, we going back to spatial analysis again? This is basically a, a spatial little, analysis a problem. Bit, <laughs> a little bit. Um, so okay. if you want a retina monitor you have the LG 5K yep. or you have the Pro Display XDR. Right. The LG 5K is maybe a thousand. I think mm-hmm. dollars at least. The Pro Display yeah. XDR is, <laughs> is the price of... Uh, I don't know how much it is in sing dollars. Um, <laughs> in, not a good sign. But... In, in USD... <laughs> Okay, actually, let's let's find out the actual price of it, just so we can get the sticker shop. Okay. Let's see. Accessories. <laughs> and then... Come on, why is it so slow? All right. See all categories, displays and mounts. And the Pro Display XDR Standard Glass, 7299 Jesus fucking Christ. 
Yeah, the LG 5K uh, Ultra Fine is uh, 1.8, by the way. 1.9 closer. Holy to 1.9. shit. Yeah, Ultra Fine 4K, which is 21 inches, is uh, 1,000. Who has that kind of money? A lot of people. Yeah, fair. Um, I mean... Yeah, but this is the thing, right? Which is normally... Uh, I mean, going by 4K numbers is is a bit easier on, on, on my brain. Um, the LG 4K is... 21 inches, right? I just said 21.5 inches. And it's a retina screen. A 21-inch monitor, yeah, a 21-inch monitor is normally um, full HD, which is 1080p. Right? And so 4K is four times of 1080p because you fit four dots, four pixels into one point. You get the same points per inch, but Apple... The, the the OS is able to deliver four yeah. dots um, dots four pixels, pixels within that dot yeah. right okay yeah so um, if you want a retina screen those are your only options yes if you don't want a retina screen well nobody not doesn't want a retina screen <laughs> but but if you are o- okay with not having a retina screen then have, that's right yeah. yeah then you have access to the full range of of um, monitors that anybody can use, right? Yes. But yeah. the problem is, either you go for a cheaper $200 monitor, okay, which doesn't really... Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. if, you're, if you're okay with it, you're okay with it, right? If all yeah, you need exactly. is screen real estate, then yeah, good for you. Yeah. Or if you go higher end on the, on the Windows side, yeah. they are primarily gaming monitors, Yes. Right? And what gamers care about is very different from what people who use Macs tend to care about. So primarily, yes. gamers care about response time. They care yep. about um, frame rate, refresh rate. Yeah. Right? And the they are generally willing to sacrifice resolution for... Is that right? Okay. Yeah. For a faster oh. response time. Right? Okay, okay. I, I didn't know this, but ah, okay. That makes sense, I guess. I mean, if you had to choose, right? Yeah, because, yeah. It's a trade-off, yeah. Correct. Because refresh rate affects your gameplay. Whereas yes. resolution just affects your experience. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's yeah. the... Get a bigger screen. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's kind of what it is, right? Uh, but yeah. if given a fixed budget, you generally choose a higher refresh rate. Often. Okay, okay. You right, often choose right. a higher refresh sense. rate. Yeah. The other thing is that the larger <coughs> the resolution, the, the harder it is on your GPU. Yes, correct. Right? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if that you don't have... the performance. Correct. If you don't have a great GPU anyway, you would, you would definitely want to trade mm. um, refresh rate for resolution. Oh, well, Absolutely, trade resolution yeah. for refresh rate the other way mm. around. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. So, <coughs> now, I am in this situation where I literally have a gaming laptop and a MacBook Pro, and I want a display that fits both of them. Yes. Well, well yeah, welcome to the, uh, the finding the Goldilocks zone, basically. Yeah, exactly. So, um, there were some... I mean, I kind of knew up front, like, you're not going to get written out. Like, this is not possible. Nope. Yep. Right? Because I, I did look up. Um, can the LG Ultrafine displays handle gaming? Uh, mm-hmm. The answer is not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember why, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's something to do with the fact that the resolution is not exactly 
um, it's not exactly your standard 4K or 5K, something like that. I can't remember what, how okay. it is. Yeah. But in any case, because these are, these max out at 60 hertz, I believe. So right. they aren't really what I would use for <clears throat> gaming anyway. Um, yeah. The other thing is, the the need for a high refresh rate depends on what games you play. And I don't generally play a lot of games that demand high refresh rate. I mean, I don't, I don't really play Counter Strike. I don't really play yeah, okay. CSGO anymore. Um, most of my okay. gaming is simulation games like Civ, mm. City Skylines. So that, for that, you need GPU. Mm. You're uh, hammering yes. a GPU, basically. Correct. And I mean, if you look at something like, like CSGO, I mean, players almost always just turn all the way down to the lowest graphic settings in order to get the highest frame rate possible. I see. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you often see like statistics for for um, frame rates, right? For gamers, mm-hmm. for for GPUs, for uh, well, for GPUs primarily, because frame rate is primarily determined by your GPU. So yeah, you'll you'll see um, frame rates for games uh, listed when you are looking at GPU specs, and so they will say like you know for like Resident Evil, how many frames per second, whatever. And mm. CS:GO invariably has the highest FPS. Right. They okay. are often in the 200s. Bloody hell. Yeah. Uh, wow, but then okay. that's also yeah. because people who play CSGO or FPSs in general, they're, they're going to know what they want. Yeah, so, yeah, fair. Yeah. So for me, it doesn't really matter so much. Um, but I did Google, right? Like, if you mm-hmm. are a gamer and how, how much of an influence does... 144 hertz make if you don't actually play high frame rate games of games that depend on high frame rate and the comment almost universally was you will notice like it doesn't affect your gameplay but you will like it a lot better Uh, the other thing is my Acer Nitro laptop already has 120 hertz so Mm. if I were to get a 60 hertz monitor that would be a drop down from the display yes. that ships with my laptop, which is kind of suck, which kind of sucks. Yes. So after scouting around, I basically I had I ended up with this set of of requirements, which was two K, because mm-hmm. that's what my GPU, which is a one six six sixteen sixty Ti, that's what it okay. will drive most comfortably. If it goes above that, it's going to start to struggle. Then yeah. I want it to be one four. 144 hertz. I want it to be mm-hmm. an IPS panel. I don't particularly mm-hmm. care whether it's curved, but I prefer flat. Right? <laughs> um, I would it's like G Sync. That one is just fashion. Yeah. Okay. I would like G Sync if it's available. Um, and what was the other? Did I have uh, 27 inches. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it must have Visa mounting. Right. Okay. Mm. It's a surprisingly narrow field. <laughs> I mean, when you have that many criteria, yeah, yeah, sure, you know. Yeah, so the... But it's, I mean, it's good that, you know, you have at least that, that set of benchmarks then to, to compare everything against. Yeah, so the monitor that I ended up with was the Acer, funnily enough, another Acer Nitro. It's an Acer Nitro <laughs> VG272P, which, I mean, like, can they come up with better names, please? <laughs> yeah. 
And VGA I mean, for video gaming? Maybe? I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, the other... I mean, there are some other monitors I was looking at. There is a HP mm-hmm. monitor that I cannot remember the name of. Oh, there is sorry. a Prism. Does HP still produce anything that people buy? I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, the HP monitor, it was a last last minute kind of entry because I was right. looking around and I saw that it had decent reviews. Um, and then okay. there is the Prism Prism F270i Pro. Ah, but we all know which, Prism and it's... Yeah, and I, Myriad I problems. just kind of wasn't willing to roll the dice on the Prism. Mm. Um, I read yeah. the reviews of the Acer and it basically says um, the black uniformity is terrible. <coughs> I can, I can okay. attest to that. Basically, if you <laughs> show a fully black screen, does it look yep. fully black? And, right. Uh, yeah. No, there is backlight leakage. It's really oh. bad. Really bad. Okay. But Ugh. other than that... Not a deal breaker. Yeah, other than that, everything is fine so far. Mm, okay. yeah, and the response time is really very fast. Not that it really matters oh. because I'm going to spend most of my time like looking at the <laughs> internet and coding or whatever and only occasionally gaming. And even when I'm gaming, um, it's going to be... Let me think. I mean, so I, I ran Civ on it and I realized that Civ okay. itself... So what G-Sync and FreeSync do, if you're not familiar with the term, right? Uh, NVIDIA GPUs have this thing called G-Sync and AMD GPUs have it have the same thing called FreeSync. Okay. Um, what, that, what they do is, let's say the frame rate that's, that is being generated by your GPU is not the same as the frame rate that your monitor is running at. Mm-hmm. You might get screen tearing right oh where the entire screen doesn't refresh at the same time yeah some lines refresh first and then other lines refresh later and you get tearing so um g-sync and freezing are meant to solve this problem but i realized that the game that i play the most by far Civ, has um there's actually a setting in the graphics settings that says frame rate should be limited by um and then you can you can select mm. what caps the frame rate, and yeah. the default okay, okay. setting is vertical sync, which effectively does the same right. thing. Right, it prevents screen yes. tearing because if your yes. frame rate goes too high and your monitor can't refresh fast enough, well, stop mm-hmm. it, lower the frame yeah. rate. Yeah. yeah, and I ran a benchmark and it's like ninety frames per second, which is like more than enough for Civ. Sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, so far, I mean, I have I have a setup with my Acer on the left, on a laptop tray. I have my MacBook on the right on another laptop tray, <laughs> and then they are both going. They both um, running HDMI inputs into the monitor. This is another thing okay. because, as I understand it, G Sync only works over DisplayPort, not HDMI. Right. Or HDMI right. compatibility is like a question mark. Um, but it turns huh. out the G-Sync may not matter that much anyway. Yes. So, yeah. who okay, cares? But, uh, this is... Uh, yeah. Okay. And I... Well, I, I mean, you know... Sorry. I, I bought uh, a USB-C to DisplayPort cable, ah, but it didn't okay, okay. work. It didn't work. Wonderful. Yeah, the moment USB-C I plugged it in... USB-C has all these weird compatibility issues. I don't really get it. I, I don't know. But, I mean, you don't really find DisplayPort on mm. most laptops. 
So I don't really have a choice. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, USB-C has all these weird compatibility issues. I think partly because it's trying to do so many things. Yes. It's, you're right. You know, yeah. you're trying to charge, you're trying to do data transfer, you're transferring yeah. like display um, data and just... Yep. Yeah. So anyway... At some I, point, the streams get crossed, basically. Yeah. So. <laughs> so of course, the next question is, I can connect my computer to my monitors... Uh, computers to my monitor. Mm, computers to, yeah. Correct. Right? And then the question <laughs> is, what about my peripherals? Yes. So, um, this was not the intention, but because at the time that I bought these peripherals, I really only had one computer. Well, not, mm-hmm. not true. I've always, since I had the Acer, I've had two. But One uh, primary machine. One primary machine, yeah. So, mm. I mostly have Logitech MX um, peripherals, which have right. this thing that allow you to switch between devices. Yes. So I can connect my MX Master Mouse, my MX Anywhere Mouse, and my MX whatever keyboard <laughs> to yeah. up to three um, devices. Okay, okay. So um, for the MX Master, I mean... It's slightly annoying because I've connected them. I bought them at different times. I connected them primarily to different machines. And so my MacBook is number two. Is it number two? I think it's number two. No, it's number one. My MacBook is number one on my MX Master and and my Acer is number two on the MX Master. Right. But on my keyboard, it's the other way around. And I can't can't seem to change it. Ugh, right. And then to That's make things worse, I have the right. MX. I have the MX anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the mouse that stays in my bag for when I'm, yep. you know, Mobile. bringing my MacBook out. Yeah, and on yeah. that one, the Acer is number one, and the MacBook is number two. So it's the opposite of the <laughs> MX Master, which is superbly annoying. And also, yes. I don't really want to game with the MX Master because it's very heavy. So right. I okay. Actually, yeah. I yeah. actually have a Razer ma- mouse plugged into my. Acer as well. <coughs> Gosh. Yes. Yeah. What so, a problem to have. Yeah. So right now I have the one keyboard that I can toggle between the two, the yep. mouse that I can toggle between the two, and then the the Razer um, Death Adder that is wired. Mm-hmm. And I'm waiting for... I, I, I do have a wireless keyboard that I could use, um, a wireless mechanical keyboard, but that one is Bluetooth only and it's bound basically uh, to one computer at a time. So that's going to be a pain. Right. I yep, have yep, yep. a wired mechanical mouse. Mechanical mouse. Oh my God. I have a wired <laughs> mechanical keyboard on the way to, to replace the Bluetooth one. Right. Okay. And I was looking well, I mean, at... Yeah. I, was, I was looking at KVM switches. Mm-hmm. Um, As not, I thought you would, yeah? Yeah. Okay, so the interesting thing is USB-C... That doesn't seem to be an option. Not yet. I think I think the USB C thing has really is it's taking its own sweet time to yes. to roll out across different yes. uh, setups. Correct. For for better or for worse, I guess. And you know, honestly, I I only hear of. I mean, if I listen, I I listen to a lot of Mac creator and Apple related podcasts, mm-hmm. and people talk about switching to all USB C. But I think that's really only possible with if you are Mac 
if you're Apple only almost because e- and, I mean and even the wireless mouses don't have full USB C support, which is why I'm using this stupid Pebble that you know is Bluetooth. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I I I don't I don't really know where that's um, hidden because you you see all these little niggling issues. The fact that USB C, yeah. I think the spec specifies a certain amount of power delivery. Yep. Which makes hubs difficult, which is why so many USB-C yes. devices are daisy-chained instead of hubs. Yes, oh my right? god. Um, and daisy-chained in the worst possible way. You know, yeah, like. either that or they have they require their own power supply. Like, if yep. you look at like the CalDigit dock, um, mm-hmm. it has multiple USB-C outs, I believe, and that is because, or USB-C in rather, but that's only because yeah. it has its own power supply. Um, if yeah. you have one of those that is bus powered, it for sure it only has one USB C out. Yeah. Or yeah. USB C in. I mean, I can't even <sighs> keep this straight anymore. USB C in is effectively what what it is, right? But right. Uh, it will only have one, and then you kind of have to daisy chain it. Whereas with USB A, yeah. it's like hubs all the way down. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of messy. I'm trying to figure out what to do with this, but I think what I will mean, end up happening. You know, as my as my keyboard degenerates because it's a butterfly keyboard I'm looking to get a wireless keyboard as well so I have to think about all these options about Bluetooth and you know the problem with Bluetooth is that they do interfere yes right. I have... so I've got Bluetooth headphones I have a Bluetooth mouse mm-hmm. and so this is the thing when I use the Pebble mouse on mm-hmm. Bluetooth setting and my headphones at the same time they interfere how, how bad is it? bad interesting so what I've done, and I've discovered, I, I, this is a stupid story. This is how dumb I am. Uh-huh. I only discovered that the Pebble actually has a dongle as well. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, and you know how I found out? When you changed I the battery? I dropped the mouse. No, oh I my dropped God. the okay. mouse. And so the reason why you don't see it is because, or at least I haven't had occasion to change the battery, the, the, the top segment of the Pebble is what comes off. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's the so, worst mouse on the planet. It really it's so bad. Is it's so bad. It. So, so I dropped it. The top panel came off, and I said, like, "There's a dongle in here." Right. So that's how I found out that the the pebble contains a dongle. Right. <laughs> it's really dumb. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm amazed by my stupidity. But for yeah, the there we for go. the MX, um, the Logitech stuff, I'm actually using Bluetooth on the Mac and then the dongle on the, on the Acer. Right. So so yeah. So the situation I have is this, right? If I get a a, a Bluetooth keyboard, the problem is then it's it's you know now I will have three USB devices. Uh, no, three Bluetooth devices, and I cannot imagine what the interference is going to be like. So when I use my mouse and my headphone now, like I'm doing right now, mm-hmm. I switch my mouse to dongle mode. And uh-huh. then I can use the headphones, and I switch back to you to Bluetooth mode when I'm using just a mouse. Interesting. I I haven't. Okay. I let me think. Oh no. Okay. When I I I think I've only actually had one Bluetooth at a time. Okay. I very I very right. rarely when I'm at my when I'm sitting down at my desk, I almost never use Bluetooth headphones or okay. earbuds. Right. Okay. I'm always like yeah, wired. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I use my Bluetooth keyboard, at that time I had a wired mouse. Mm. Um, and then I switched over to the Logitech MX Master because 
the um, because Razer Synapse, which is Razer's proprietary software for their peripherals, stopped supporting right. um, was not supported on Catalina. Is that right? Yeah, oh. and so the side okay. button stopped working, and for me that's like breaking. That's like losing a limb. Yeah. Right when you have your your configuration, and it stops working. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think at that point I got the MX Master, but by that time, let me think. I can't remember the timeline of this. No, no, there was there was a very brief period when I had both a Bluetooth keyboard and the Bluetooth mouse. Um, right, but never really had issues with that. So okay, yeah, well, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't know. I do notice the increased Bluetooth interference though from all the trace together, from all the trace together ah. stuff because. I presume just about well, we we know that takeout of trace together is about fifty percent, right? So you go on a train, yeah. half the people have their Bluetooth turned on. That's like right. when I'm trying to connect to my earbuds or whatever, you can see like all the phones around you that have Bluetooth yep. turned on. It's kind of creepy. Uh, broadcasting. Yeah. 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 Correct. And um and I I keep getting drop off in my in my Earbuds. It's, Do you? Okay. It's okay. Really I mean, I, irritating. I don't really listen to music when I'm on the... I usually listen to music when I'm working, so... Right. Yeah. And so that's, yeah. It's, it's happening to a degree that I don't think happened before, so... Ugh, right. It's kind of annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But yep. anyway, Bluetooth. there is a wired... There's going to be a wired keyboard, mechanical keyboard. And so far, the only solution that I have I can think of is that um, I'm just going to have to physically change the switch. Just change yep. the switch. Change the whatever is plugged yeah, in. Sorry. I'll just run yep. a USB-C cable out from my <laughs> Acer, run one out from my MacBook. They're going to be wired neatly, I hope, into like a spot <laughs> on my desk. And then whichever right. one I need, I'm just going to switch it up. Yep. Um, Basically the KVM strategy. It is. It is a KVM without the switch. Yeah. Right. Like it's a physical. Switch. I thought about yeah. trying to. I thought thought about trying to make it so that I could use a USB A. But okay. uh, because okay. USB A KVM switches are much more affordable. Yeah, uh, because KVMs are surprisingly expensive. They're uh, really expensive. Yeah. 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 But then <laughs> I was looking into KVMs at one. I don't know for what reason, but I was like, "Holy shit! Look at the price on those things." Yeah, but then I mean, I'm I'm thinking about it, and it just doesn't really make sense because. I don't have anything else other than a keyboard that's going to be shared right. between these two things. So, it and and the one that I found is like four four inputs. So I'm going to have okay. like one input coming out. I mean, to be thing. fair, KVMs are mostly for server side uh, uh, yes. server side use, which is why I guess they are marked up at price point. Correct, right? Because yeah. you have multiple computers that are headless mm-hmm. most of the time, and then you just. You just need one monitor and one keyboard Shared, and one yeah. one mouse for them. And I, I bet mm. you that's why there are four of them because uh, four ports, right? Because it's one for a monitor, one for a keyboard, one for a mouse, and then one for like yeah. a drive or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, and the other problem that I'm running into is there are four ports on the MacBook Pro. One is taken up for power. Yes. One is yes. taken up for display. Right now, yep. because I'm podcasting, one is taken up for the... Um, USB interface yeah, and okay, I am right. left with one right um, yeah. but there is this odd problem which is that 
uh, it's been known for some time that the ports on the left and right side are different. Yes. Because the ones on the left, they are throttled based on heat. The ones on the right yep. are not. Yes. It doesn't mean that they are not <laughs> throttled, right? Because something will always throttle if it gets too hot. Yes. Yep. Yeah. But the guideline that I've read is that charge on the right side yep. um, and run your peripherals out of the left yep. and try not to plug anything else other than power on the right. This means effectively yes. that I only have one free port. Right? Is, yeah. And then if I'm going <laughs> to run, um, if I'm going to have a keyboard, where is that going to go? Yeah. yeah. So I'm seriously thinking about whether... <laughs> For desk purposes, whether I mm-hmm. actually want a something like um, the CalDigit dock, which is powered, right? Mm-hmm. Have a powered dock at my desk that can serve two or three or four USB-C outputs, inputs, outputs, yeah. whatever, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Inputs. Yeah. They are inputs. They are inputs. Right. <laughs> so that I can, I can have just one cable for power, maybe one cable for the monitor, maybe one cable for the dock, and then everything else goes into the dock. But then there is also this problem of the USB-C audio interface should really be plugged in directly. Yes. Right? And now I'm like, yes. why do I have this problem? Like, can I yeah. really, can I, can I safely plug in all four peripherals? Uh, all four, can I safely use all four ports without my computer overheating? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, so I, I have to figure don't this know out. As well. I have to I mean, figure you know, this I've out. I mean, I've got my own here. problems because, you know, I, I've been trying to get a, a dual screen setup going and my dad very nicely found a, a, a disused TV, TV screen uh-huh. with HDMI port. So I, I use that. Uh, and it works perfectly fine. I mean, the image quality is not great. It's not for gaming, basically. Yeah. But the, the problem I had with this is that I tried to do a, a lecture recording because mm-hmm. I was recording a talk. Um, and the software, and, well, I don't know if it's a software issue or maybe a hardware issue. But when I record, when I... Okay, basically, you know, this, this, this software is a screen capture software. Yeah. It captures audio coming in. It captures your screen information. Which software is it? It's called Kaltura. Okay. K A L T U R A. It's it's, a, it. it's used by Blackboard basically. It's okay. a Blackboard plugin. All right. Um and so the problem is when I have two screens there is a lag between the audio and the video capture. Okay. It's probably just it's probably a hardware problem because I'm you know I'm I'm pushing out uh, video information through the dongle in uh-huh. the HDMI cable. Right. And so when I record, when I have my dual screen activated or when I have two screens activated, basically there'll be a, like a, a very, very noticeable three-second lag between the video and the Three audio. seconds. Three fucking Jesus. seconds. Jesus, okay. It's ridiculous. So I was like, nope, I had to switch it off and then run it on just my, 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 my Mac display. Uh, okay. Yeah, and, and that worked fine. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know whether, I mean, it's probably a combination of the, how much information is being captured by the software. And also the output rate of the HDMI from the dongle as well. Right. Yeah. Right. In any case, okay. you know, I don't really need a double screen. It's just a, it's not vanity, but it's, you know, utility for very specific use cases. With yeah. running. I mean, what, what's useful now for me is I have Logic running on my MacBook screen. 
And yep. then on my main 27-inch monitor, I actually have uh, four windows open. Hmm. And the way that I arrange it is I arrange them in the quadrants. So top left right. is Messenger, bottom left is Zoom, top right is uh, Chrome, and bottom right is Notion. Well, I wish I was just that much discipline, but yeah, okay, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> no, but it's, it's for this purpose, right? Because <clears throat> when podcasting, mm. I kind of need to see all four rather than yes, switching between like where, which, which desktop am I looking at now and all that stuff. Yeah. And then I have Logic always running on the, on yes. the MacBook Pro. So that just makes life easier compared to what I was doing before where I actually had, um, I had something similar, but they were, they were layered on top of one another. So Oof, I would still okay, have to go yeah, into mission yeah. control and switch them back and forth. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's my setup right now. It is the other, the other benefit of it is because now everything is mounted on Visa arms. Mm-hmm. I have oh my desk, man, that's nice. I have my desk back. Yes. yes. Oh, that sounds amazing. Gosh. Yes. So it's very nice. I mean, I, I I don't know when I'm heading back, so I don't want to spend too much time singing out my, my setup here. Singing. <laughs> yeah. Singing. God, this yep. term hasn't been used in a while. But yeah, you know, I, I don't want to, to pimp out my, my setup too much because, you know, when I head back to the US, you at can't some bring point, it with you. I, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, well. Eh. Okay, this is running uh, almost two hours, but I discovered that Good it's fine. Point. It's fine. You know why? Because okay. in the past, I've exported the podcast as stereo, which is stupid because uh, we only have yes, one you. input track, basically. We're not doing ASMR. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, therefore, by exporting as mono, I can half the size of the... Oh, yes. We can go longer if we want to, but uh, I think this is fine. We can go on Spotify even, can we? <laughs> Probably could you look into that? Um, yeah, so we will uh, see. Uh, we'll see you whenever we see you, I guess. Yes, I mean, yeah. this next couple of weeks should be a bit freer. Uh, the same. Before. I mean, the semester only starts 18th January for me, so that's at least a bit of break time in between. 18th January is when I start my new job, so. Mm hmm. There we go. Wait, yep. what, you'll be doing the masters concurrently, is it? Yes. Which, speaking okay. of which, uh, is what I will be doing right after this, because mm. I need to finish an onboarding course before I will be allowed oh. to enroll for classes. So those classes start on I think seventh Jan. So I'm going to try and oh, squeeze funny, huh? as much as I can into huh. into the first two weeks before before classes start uh, before work starts. Right. Um, yeah. It is earlier. Uh, I believe Pen itself is only eight. Wait, I think Pen itself is only starting on the eighteenth. Okay, delays okay, right, due right, to the right, coronavirus, yeah, yeah. but but mm-hmm. um, the online cohort is starting um, at the pre-planned time, which I think actually on second thought is eleventh January. Oh, okay. Yeah, huh. one week before. So in-person classes were delayed by a week because of COVID. Right. Yeah, yeah, but online classes they are like hey hey hey. Just continue as normal. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Okay. So this is episode uh, uh, 14 of uh, Monkey Mind. And you can find the show notes at monkeymind.xyz slash 014. And uh, we will see you next Whenever. week. Next week, hopefully. <laughs> but Next week. Yeah. Barring any unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, exactly. All right. Yes. Bye-bye.